The House and Senate are both in recess. The House is scheduled to return a week from Wednesday on February 28th, but may skip next week and not return until the first week of March. The Senate is scheduled to come back next Monday. Last week in the House, the House came back to work on Tuesday and voted to pass a bill under suspension of the rules. Then, having established who was in the chamber and who wasn't, the Republican leadership brought up the motion to reconsider H. Res. 863. That's the resolution impeaching DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The motion to reconsider passed by a vote of 216 to 211, with only one congressman, Republican Tom McClintock of California, crossing party lines to vote with the other side. Then the House took up H. Res. 863 a second time, and this time it passed by a vote of 214 to 213. On Wednesday, the House passed a bill under suspension of the rules. Then the House took up and passed a rule governing floor consideration of H.R. 7176, the Unlocking Our Domestic LNG Potential Act. Then the House took up another rule, this one governing floor consideration of H.R. 7160, the Marriage Penalty Elimination Act, which would address demands from some blue state Republicans to lessen the impact of the 2017 changes to the state and local tax deduction. Except this time, for the sixth time in this Congress, a feat so extraordinary that no one can remember the last time a single Congress saw six different rules fail, the House voted down the rule when 18 Republicans voted against it. This was a demonstration of their displeasure that the Speaker had agreed to the Blue State Republicans' demands for a vote on a bill to lessen the impact of the 2017 changes to the state and local tax deduction. Then the House took up and passed a bill under suspension of the rules. On Thursday, the House took up and passed H.R. 7176, the Unlocking Our Domestic LNG Potential Act. The vote was 224 to 200, with nine Democrats crossing over to vote with 215 Republicans to pass the bill. Then the House took up and passed two bills under suspension of the rules, and then they were done. Last week in the Senate, the Senate, you will recall, stayed in session over the weekend. On Monday, the Senate voted to agree to the Murray Substitute Amendment, which was the test of the Schumer Foreign Aid Bill with no border security policy changes in it and $95 billion for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. Seventeen Republicans voted for it. Then the Senate voted to agree to cloture on the bill. On Tuesday, the Senate voted on the bill as amended. It passed by a vote of 70 to 29, with 22 Republicans voting for it. And then they were done. Now, let's talk about non-citizen voting. On Thursday of last week, Breitbart reported on the results of a new McLaughlin and Associates poll conducted for Tea Party Patriots Action. The poll was in the field from January 25 to 31, and it surveyed 1,000 general election voters with a margin of error of plus or minus 3.1% at the 95% confidence interval. The survey revealed that 86% of voters said only American citizens ought to be allowed to vote in U.S. elections. Fully 87% said they agreed that proof of U.S. citizenship should be required to register to vote in American elections. Additionally, 79% said foreigners should be prohibited from interfering, including voting, in U.S. elections. Quote, it's simple. Americans want to protect American democracy and American elections from the foreign interference of allowing non-citizens to vote, end quote, 
said pollster John McLaughlin, who doubles as former President Trump's pollster. He continues, American voters want to protect their vote from being canceled out by the vote of non-citizens. Our friend Cleta Mitchell with the Election Integrity Network called non-citizen voting, quote, the greatest threat to the integrity of the 2024 election, unquote, in a statement to Breitbart News. We'll have more on this topic in coming weeks and months. Stay tuned. Now let's talk about the Iran nuclear deal and the Mali investigation. You may recall that last year we had several reports on Robert Malley, the man the Biden administration tapped at its beginning to conduct negotiations with the Iranian regime in the hopes of getting Tehran to agree to once again be bound by the rather weak constraints of the Iran nuclear deal Malley had helped negotiate when he worked for the Obama-Biden administration. Malley had mysteriously lost his security clearance last spring, but the State Department had continued to allow him to conduct negotiations with Iran for months after that, before pulling his clearance and suspending him without pay. Then we learned that the FBI had gotten involved, and the nature of the inquiry changed. The FBI doesn't investigate people, it investigates potential crimes. Now, Semaphore has reported that, quote, the State Department's Inspector General has opened an internal investigation into the steps leading up to and after the suspension of the Biden administration's special envoy to Iran, Robert Malley. On January 23rd, the Inspector General's office informed members of Congress about the probe in response to growing questions from U.S. lawmakers about Malley's status and the reasons behind the Diplomatic Security Service's decision to revoke his security clearance last April. Malley continued to perform some of the duties of the special envoy for nearly three months before the State Department officially placed him on unpaid leave in late June, end quote. We expect that the Inspector General's report eventually will be made public, but given the scope of the investigation, it may not be completed before the election, which may be exactly why it's been ordered. Now let's talk about Navalny's death. A week ago Thursday, Tucker Carlson released to the world a two-hour interview he had done with Russian dictator Vladimir Putin. The tone of that interview could be properly described as softball and Putin was later reported to have been disappointed that he didn't get any tough questions from Carlson. Two days later, former President Trump said at a rally that he would encourage Russia to do, quote, whatever the hell they want, unquote, to any NATO member country that was delinquent in meeting its obligation to spend at least 2% of its gross domestic product on defense, thereby promising that the U.S. would violate a key treaty obligation which has underpinned U.S. national security policy since the 1940s, and which, in the eyes of many historians, has been the heart of the most successful defensive military alliance in history. Putin pays attention to this stuff. On Friday, eight days after Carlson released his interview, and six days after Trump said what he said about Russia and NATO, the Putin regime announced the unexplained and mysterious death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, Putin's strongest political opponent. Prior to his death, Navalny, 47, was being held in an Arctic Circle prison 1,200 miles from Moscow, serving a 19-year sentence for opposing Putin. He was seen in court just the day before his death, laughing and joking with the judge. 
The news comes less than a month before an election that will give Putin another six years in power. If he serves out that term, he will replace Joseph Stalin as Russia's longest-serving leader since Catherine the Great died in 1796 after 34 years in power. President Biden responded to the news by saying Washington doesn't know yet exactly what happened, quote, but there is no doubt that the death of Navalny was a consequence of something Putin and his thugs did, end quote. As of this writing on Monday morning, former President Trump has yet to say anything about Navalny's death. I want to put Navalny's death in context for you to help you understand why this is so important to us. The Free Press just published some rather powerful reporting, an exchange of letters between Navalny and the famed Soviet dissident Natan Sharansky. Navalny had just finished reading Fear No Evil, Sharansky's memoir of his years in the Soviet Gulag, and he wrote to Sharansky from his own prison, quote, I want to thank you for this book as it has helped me a lot and continues to help. Your book gives hope because the similarity between the two systems, the Soviet Union and Putin's Russia, their ideological resemblance, the hypocrisy that serves as the very basis of their existence, and the continuity from the former to the latter, all this guarantees an equally inevitable collapse. The virus of freedom is far from being eradicated, he continued. It is no longer tens or hundreds as before, but tens and hundreds of thousands who are not scared to speak out for freedom and against the war despite the threats. Hundreds of them are in prisons, but I am confident that they will not be broken and they will not give up. And many of them draw strength and inspiration from your story and your legacy. I am definitely one of them. My thanks to you. Here, I copied it for myself from the book. And then he lists a Hebrew phrase often sung at the end of the Passover Seder and at the end of a service on Yom Kippur. It translates as, Next Year in Jerusalem. To which Sharansky replied, quote, Alexei, you are not just a dissident. You are a dissident with a style. My horror over your poisoning changed to amazement and exhilaration when you started your own independent investigation. I was very angered by the question of a certain European correspondent the day after your return to Russia. Why did he return? We all knew that he would be arrested at the airport. Does he not understand such simple things? My answer was pretty rude. You're the one who doesn't understand something. If you think that his goal is survival, then you are right. But his true concern is the fate of his people. And he is telling them, I am not afraid, and you should not be afraid either. I wish to you, no matter how hard it may be physically, to maintain your inner freedom. Now the question of Russian nukes in space. On Tuesday, Republican Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio, the chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, issued a cryptic statement saying, quote, Today, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence has made available to all members of Congress information concerning a serious national security threat. I am requesting that President Biden declassify all information relating to this threat so that Congress, the administration, and our allies can openly discuss the actions necessary to respond to this threat, end quote. For hours, Washington was on fire. What in the world was he talking about? 
It turns out that for about a year, maybe more, according to various news reports, the Biden administration has known about Russia's efforts to put a new weapon in space, some kind of satellite killer that uses a nuclear weapon to blind satellites. A nuclear weapon detonated in space could take out dozens of satellites in one fell swoop, knocking out satellites that are used for everything from military communications to GPS guidance to bank transactions. Were Russia to develop and deploy such a weapon, it would give Vladimir Putin a way to hurt the United States or its allies without directly killing humans. It would also violate an arms control treaty that prohibits the nuclearization of space that goes back to the 1960s. Now let's talk about the emergency supplemental. On Tuesday, the Senate finished its work on President Biden's four-month-old request for an emergency supplemental funding bill to provide assistance to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. The bill appropriates $95 billion for its purposes and includes no funds or policy changes to address the crisis at our southern border. Nevertheless, 22 Senate Republicans voted for it. Not quite half the Senate conference, but close. The bill landed with a loud thud in the House. Speaker Johnson released a statement saying, quote, House Republicans were crystal clear from the very beginning of discussion that any so-called national security supplemental legislation must recognize that national security begins at our own border. The House acted 10 months ago to help enact transformative policy change by passing the Secure the Border Act. And since then, including today, the Senate has failed to meet the moment. The mandate of national security supplemental legislation was to secure America's own border before sending additional foreign aid around the world. It is what the American people demand and deserve. Now, in the absence of having received any single border policy change from the Senate, the House will have to continue its, to work its own will on these important matters. America deserves better than the Senate's status quo, end quote. But let's be clear about something. If this bill were to get to the floor of the House, it would very likely pass. While the majority of the House Republican Conference opposes continued assistance to Ukraine, a significant minority of that conference still supports Ukraine, as do the vast majority of members of the Democratic Caucus in the House. Even Arizona Republican Andy Biggs, a strong opponent of aid to Ukraine, admitted as much to a reporter for Politico saying, quote, if it were to get to the floor, it would pass. Let's just be frank about that, end quote. Speaker Johnson doesn't seem inclined to put this bill on the floor. Georgia Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene has threatened that if he puts any Ukraine aid bill on the floor, she will introduce a motion to vacate against him. Given the slim Republican majority, that's a threat he's got to take seriously. There is a way the bill or a version of it could get to the floor. That's with a discharge petition. Remember, the House and Senate are totally different in many ways. The Senate rules allow one man or woman to gum up the works. The House rules, on the other hand, are built on the strength of a majority. On any given day, a majority, that is 218 members, can do just about whatever they want. Nobody says they all have to be from the same party. They just have to constitute a majority. So, a discharge petition. If 218 members sign this piece of paper, then they get to move a resolution to the floor for consideration, even if the Speaker opposes it. 
Now, the only way this would happen is if members of the majority party were to cross party lines and sign a discharge petition authored by the minority. Right now, there's a discharge petition that has 213 signatures on it. They're all Democrats. They need five more Republicans to sign it, and then they can move a Ukraine aid bill to the floor. Are there five House Republicans so determined to get aid to Ukraine that they're willing to risk whatever punishment might be meted out against them for signing a discharge petition and putting on the floor a bill the majority of their own conference opposes? House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Michael McCall, Republican, seems to think so. On Wednesday, he told Sahil Kapoor of NBC News a discharge petition would not happen. No, he said. That'd be a nuclear option. Taking away the Speaker's power would backfire. A lot of Republicans that would vote for Ukraine would not if that happened, end quote. But two days later, at a Christian Science Monitor breakfast, he said, quote, I don't see any way of getting out of Israel, Indo-Pacific, and eventually Ukraine coming to the floor. He's either going to have to do it, put it on the floor himself, or it's going to be by virtue of a discharge petition, which is a complete evisceration of his power, because it basically says we're going to do this without the Speaker being in charge. End quote. Stay tuned. Now to government funding. When the House and Senate return next week, the last week of February, they will have just a few days before the March 1 deadline to pass a bill funding those portions of the federal government funded by the appropriations bills for military construction and veterans affairs, transportation, housing and urban development, agriculture and rural development, and energy and water. Punchbowl News reports on a key meeting that took place last Wednesday in the Speaker's office. Attending were conservative Republicans Chip Roy, Byron Donalds, Michael Cloud, and House Freedom Caucus Chair Bob Good. Appropriations Committee Subcommittee Chairman Tom Cole, David Joyce, Bob Adderholt, and Mario Diaz-Balart. Vulnerable lawmakers like Mike Garcia and Laurie chavez Rimer, and, of course, Speaker Johnson. Punchbowl reports this was a long meeting, and the gist of it was this. The Appropriations Subcommittee chairs informed the conservatives that no matter how much they didn't like it, they simply did not have the votes to get the conservative policy writers they wanted into the appropriations bills. The conservatives angrily accused the appropriators and the speaker of surrendering and suggested several times that they should force the issues by shutting down the government. The appropriators countered that that never worked before and wouldn't work now. Johnson has three options. First, he can choose to put another continuing resolution on the floor to buy some more time. Second, he could put a full-year continuing resolution on the floor. Or third, he could try to pass compromise bills that lose conservative votes, but make up for them by gaining Democrat votes. The first and third options risk provoking a motion to vacate. At this point, many of the conservatives would be happy with a full-year continuing resolution because that would trigger a provision in the debt limit deal that automatically cuts spending across the board by 1% if all 12 appropriations bills are not signed into law by April 30. That cut, about $50 billion in total, would fall more heavily on the domestic side than on the defense side. Now let's talk about FISA reauthorization. Speaker Johnson started last week thinking Republicans had worked out an agreement between the Republican members of the Intelligence Committee and the Republican members of the Judiciary Committee 
so that he could bring the FISA reauthorization bill to the floor. Other senior members of the party weren't so sure. While they had agreed on 63 of the 64 points of disagreement between the members of the two committees, they hadn't agreed on that last one. And that one point of disagreement over requiring warrants for searches on U.S. citizens turned out to be particularly nettlesome. So, after saying at the start of the week that he was planning to hold the vote at the end of the week, he decided midweek to take the vote off the schedule. At this point, we don't know when the FISA reauthorization will be rescheduled. Now to the latest on the Trump indictments. On Thursday and Friday, the judge overseeing Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis's case against former President Trump heard testimony to help him decide whether or not he should disqualify or otherwise punish Willis for allegedly having and hiding a romantic relationship with Nathan Wade, whom she hired to serve as a prosecutor on the case. Judge McAfee did not decide what he would do other than agree to review more evidence that's currently under seal, and he will schedule another hearing, possibly as soon as this coming Friday. Now the latest on the Biden impeachment. Three things happened on the Biden impeachment front last week. First, special counsel Robert Herr agreed to a request from House Republican Committee chairman to testify before their committees on the investigation he conducted into President Biden's mishandling of classified information. While most of the world seems to be focusing on what Herr's report had to say about Biden's mental acuity, Please, let's not overlook the fact that Herr also said his investigation, quote, uncovered evidence that President Biden willfully retained and disclosed classified materials after his vice presidency when he was a private citizen, end quote. Second, the Washington Post reported that while President Biden attacked special counsel Herr for asking Biden when his son Beau died, the conversation did not happen that way. You may recall that in the press conference Biden held to angrily respond to the special counsel's report, he said of her, quote, how in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, it wasn't any of their damn business, end quote. In fact, her never asked Biden about his son Beau at all. Instead, Biden raised the issue when he was asked about his workflow at a rental home in Virginia he lived in from 2016 to 2018, when a ghostwriter was helping him write a memoir about losing his son to cancer in 2015. Third, special counsel David Weiss indicted for lying to federal prosecutors a man named Alexander Smirnov. Smirnov is the longtime FBI confidential informant we learned about last year, who told federal agents years ago that he had been told by the head of the Ukrainian energy firm Burisma that the head of Burisma had been shaken down by Joe and Hunter Biden and had been required to bribe each of them to the tune of $5 million in exchange for reducing the anti-corruption pressure on Burisma. Not surprisingly, Democrats gloated and demanded that House Republicans end the impeachment inquiry. House Republicans said their inquiry hadn't been relying on Smirnov, and the wheels of the inquiry grind on. Now let's talk about the 2024 election cycle, latest news. West Virginia Democrat Senator Joe Manchin, 
who said he would not run for re-election to the Senate in 2024 and therefore immediately became the subject of significant speculation that he might decide to enter the presidential race as an independent or possibly a third-party candidate, announced that he would not be running for president. Democrats breathed a sigh of relief. Now, if only they can find a candidate to run for president. On the other side of the aisle, former President Trump declared his preference for North Carolina Republican State Chairman Michael Watley to replace soon-to-be outgoing Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel as chairman of the RNC and his daughter-in-law Lara Trump to serve as RNC co-chair and, perhaps most importantly, his campaign's co-campaign manager Chris Lasavita to serve as the RNC's chief operating officer. Now to the Jenny Beth Show. Episode 53 of the Jenny Beth Show dropped last Wednesday. The episode features Jenny Beth's interview with Ben Burkwam at the Turning Point Action Restoring National Confidence Summit in Las Vegas. Ben is the founder of Frontline America and an investigative reporter for Real America's Voice. It's a great conversation. And that's our Washington Report for this week.